Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to podcast episode 50 in our continuing series on the second half of American history. In episode 49, we continued our discussion of the events in the Lyndon Bain Johnson administration by looking at the racial tensions, anti-war riots, and female male inequality issues in the workplace and elsewhere that were more most pronounced in the cities than anywhere else within the United States. We looked at how Hollywood was catching on to that, as well as what would the events that would turn out to be the darkest years since World War II, that would be the year 1968, that would the Tet Offensive that would cause Lyndon Baines Johnson to bail out of the race, the assassinations of Martin Luther King, as well as in April of 68, as well as Bobby Kennedy two months later, uh, is sometimes or occasionally is asked in my are my face-to-face classes, is Richard Nixon's election in 1968 also the reason it's the darkest year? No, no, it's not. It's not my title for the year. I'm not trying to tip my hand or whether I'm a Democrat or Republican. Nixon did some phenomenal things in his time in office. Um, but it is because of those events earlier in the year that did help pave the way from, for him to be able to trounce his Democratic challenger. So from there, we also then looked at the early life of Richard Nixon, his foreign policy uh, is. Uh, concerns and platforms, as well as his domestic policy initiatives. So this, in this podcast, again, episode number 50, we begin by looking at the infamous event, something so totally unnecessary on every level of what again becomes known as the Watergate scandal. Because, again, and I I strongly encourage you, if you have not listened to my prior podcast in 49, this is where 50 really does build, this episode really does build on an immediate prior one, because I go into, again, that childhood of Richard Nixon, as well as the events in 1968, that led him by 1972 to get to the point that he trusted practically nobody. And what's worse is that an a Pentagon insider by the name of Daniel Ellsberg leaked what became known as the Pentagon Papers. Daniel Ellsberg, an action that he took, that he fully defended all the way until he died just earlier this year in June of 2023. The Pentagon Papers, in a nutshell, actually criticized Kennedy and Johnson far more than it did Nixon, but he was so afraid that more papers would come out showing that Nixon also during his first term was not always forthcoming with the American people in regards to Vietnam. So he was so fearful of this that he created what became known as an enemies list. And the enemies list corresponded with the insiders who made up what became known as the Committee to Re-Elect the President. 
Anybody want to guess what the acronym for that committee was? Literally, I'm not making this up. It truly was CREEP, C-R-E-E-P, the Committee to Re-Elect the President. The committee's work was not your typical presidential initiatives for re-election. It wasn't just doing a an innocent analysis of who the Democratic challengers might be. It wasn't looking at the different organizations within the United States that would endorse the president for a second term. Would he be losing any prior supporters? Or are there any Democratic supporters or independents that he might be able to sway in his direction? Those are what your traditional re-election committees do. The creep, that committee, was not responsible for that. Rather, they were to look for dirt. Beyond that, they were to look for mud. They wanted to find information that not only that they could use against the Democrats at the most uh, most opportune time, but they were also to dig up any kind of dirt and mud or, ready for this, even facts that would be true that could be used against the Republican administration, against Nixon at the most inopportune time. As a result, the committee was meeting in the White House, in the Oval Office, in mid early to mid-June. There was a series of meetings, early to mid-June 1972, where President Nixon, beyond strongly encouraged the committee to get whoever they needed to, to get whatever information they could from wherever necessary. Yeah, you want me to repeat that, don't you? Don't worry, even me repeating, it's not going to make it any clearer. But that, again, is where the paranoia is coming out for it, fourfold, if not more so. The idea to get any kind of information, in other words, look for it, even if it's not there, against anybody that could be criticizing the president from any location that they can get their hands on. Please know, it's not a matter of giving credit or credits due or not, it's just facts. We have no witness testimony. We have no audio or visual recording of President Nixon authorizing any group of people to physically break the law to get into an office to obtain information. No, we do not have that, at least not at this point. Now, with information coming out earlier this year on the Kennedy assassination, which, as we know, was a full nine years prior to that, information can still come out that might make what I just said null and void. But again, only going with what I have here in October of 2023, Nixon never said that. But Nixon did use very strong language to get information at any cost from anywhere about anyone that could be criticizing the president. Members within the Committee to Reelect the President took that as an affirmation or a presidential nod to get the information at where any cost from wherever possible. That would bring the Democratic National Committee headquarters onto the radar of the committee to re-elect the president. It would be on June 17, 1972, 
when five quote unquote plumbers were caught in the Democratic National Committee headquarters. What I mean by that by five plumbers is that was the nickname. They were to look for any clogs or they were to put a clog wherever necessary to keep the water flowing where they needed it, where they needed it to. But the committee to reelect the president putting in the five plumbers, again, clearly is breaking the law. Not only that you're breaking in, that you are violating private territory. It's private, not a residence, but a private business, or in this case, a political establishment from the opposite political party. It is wrong and illegal and unethical on so many levels. The five plumbers, G. Gordon Liddy and the other four, worked their way in through the main hallway doors, single door actually, of the National Committee headquarters in the relatively new Watergate Hotel Complex, which is still in Washington, D.C., at the same address under the same name. The Watergate, if you happen to want to take a pause the podcast now and take a quick look on Google or your search engine of choice, the Watergate, if you look at the exterior of the building from an aerial view, if you look closely, the Watergate Hotel was designed to look like something unique. And I encourage you to take a look at it and see if that building resembles anything to you with its curved sides and the its curved exterior and those different formations on the tops of the ledges and the roof and whatnot. Does any of those images of the Watergate Hotel Complex make you think of anything? If you don't, let me remind you that it is 19, early 1970s in just a few short years will be America's 200th birthday of our independence. That's right. The Watergate Hotel was designed to look subtly like a birthday cake or an anniversary cake for the 200th anniversary. It was supposed to be nothing but a positive connotation, hopefully making the Watergate Hotel a positive place to be a place with a good connotation, which unfortunately would be torpedoed because of this break-in. The Watergate Hotel Complex, the Watergate Compound, Watergate period, would not only have a negative reputation because of this event, but once it started to come out of this, refusing to change the name of the hotel, once it came out of this by the mid-1990s, it would be plummeted once again into infamy by yet another presidential scandal. More about that when we get there. So again, in, on June 17th, these five plumbers worked their way into the main door of the hallway leading to the Democratic National Committee headquarters. And as they walk in, rather than have to worry about trying to get the door to reopen when they want to leave, one of the plumbers took a piece of duct tape and put it over the jam of the door so that the little latch wouldn't connect when the door shut and had the latch go into the pin go into the door frame itself. They wanted to just begin for speed and ease, just be able to pull that door open, remove the tape and waltz out of there. It was that very tape, however, that the security guard doing his will, doing his, his job, and I said his last name there, and I didn't mean to, but that was his name, Frank Wills, a man that basically would die in obscurity 
because he what he uncovered led to such a tumultuous event in American history that Frank Wills was actually fired for doing his job. Can you imagine if Frank Wills had uncovered something in the 21st century? Heck, within a matter of days, he'd have his own book deal. He'd be on every talk show host and every panel that our major news networks would want to interview him. He probably would end up having his own reality show if he really wanted to push for it. But that's not the types of times that we're talking about here in the 1970s. So as a result, the five plumbers were caught. Well, then where and how does this quote-unquote smoking gun come out of it? Now, please know, in my very brief overview encapsulating the Watergate scandal, I'm not doing anything near the justice of the chain of events. Interesting word to use, justice, but I don't in the interesting chain of events as it plays out. I mean, books I've, I have read over here to my right, I'm glancing at these books on nothing but the Watergate scandal, one of them being Shadow by Bob Woodward, as well as the oral history of the presidency uh, done with Richard Nixon, of which focuses, of course, on the Watergate scandal. So where then does the smoking gun come in from Richard Nixon if he never said, hey, guys, break into the hotel, break into whatever you have to, to get the information? Where what would become known retrospectively as the smoking gun was six days later, once again in the White House Oval Office, when on June 23rd, 1972, Nixon ordered his chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman, to warn the FBI to back off of the investigation, that it was a matter of national security, no questions asked. That is the moment, right there, listeners, that Richard Nixon took the Constitution of the United States that he had sworn to uphold, put it down below him and behind him, intervened in an investigation that he had no right or jurisdiction in getting involved with, placed his demands in order, then took the Constitution and put it back up above his head. Listeners, international as well as domestic, it doesn't work that way in the United States. Yes, presidents have tried it before. Governors have gone to jail. Senators have been have had their day in court, members of the House of Representatives, for trouncing on the Constitution. But the bottom line is the constitutional and its following subsequent due process prevails. But this would take months, many months, for this to come to a head. The investigation would immediately get ramped up with Haldeman's warning, now putting the focus more specifically on the Oval Office. As time went on, an anonymous tip came in that Nixon had a recording device in the Oval Office where conversations of almost every type were recorded. Was that true? Well, it turns out it was. No, not with his paranoia did Richard Nixon install the system. The system started not with his predecessor, Lyndon Johnson, but actually with John F. Kennedy. But in Kennedy's time in the early 1960s, it was a relatively cumbersome system to use, so, Nixon, so Kennedy rarely used it. 
Johnson liked the idea, especially if he could record information to be used against people who meet with him in the Oval Office. So he used the recording system and actually had it um, replaced with more technologically advanced, uh, technologically advanced systems. However, by the time Nixon comes into office, not only wants the system in place, but he is told that relatively new technology allows the system to be activated by nothing more than the sound of a human voice. In other words, Nixon wouldn't have to get up out of his chair if he decided, hmm, this is a conversation I think I might want to be able to record for future uses, good or bad or otherwise. He would have to get up out of his chair, go to the location in the Oval Office, try to be innocuous and in pressing the button to start the recording system. No, this system, as long as he put it on standby, would record every conversation just with the sound of a human voice. Between that, the Saturday Night Massacre in October of 1973, where Nixon started firing people within Archibald Cox and others within the Attorney General's office, for not stopping the investigation, which again became known as the Saturday Night Massacre, that the Senate and the prosecution demanding to listen to the tapes. Nixon would fight between October of 1973 to July of 1974, that for matters of national security all the way to personal prerogative, he does not have to comply with those demands. Ultimately, he would lose after repeal and repeal and repeal were turned down against him. The tapes were delivered with what became known as the 18 and a half minute gap, where that conversation was pulled up from June 23rd, 1972. And just as the conversation turned to the Watergate Hotel, suddenly, the tape goes silent for those minutes until it is recording suddenly playing again on a completely different topic. Nixon tried to justify that and defend himself. Then he put it on his secretary who accidentally re-recorded over the tape. But if she re-recorded it, why wasn't anything recorded? None of it made sense. That would lead the prosecution through the United States House of Representatives to draw up three articles of impeachment to be proposed. It is then in those late days of July, early days of August of 1974, that the president now was looking more and more unhealthy, losing a significant amount of weight as the vast, massive weight of the scandal was getting closer and closer to wiping out his presidency, where he would, with the consent, or more or less, I should say, with the encouragement of even almost everyone within his own Republican Party to do the right thing and resign. He fought it tooth and nail, where the only supporters that he had, ironically enough, was his own wife and immediate family. But the advisors would prevail, and Nixon announced his resignation on August 8th, 
1974 to be effective at noon the following day, August 9th, 1974. That would be the time when Richard Nixon gave his last speech right before noon, right before the clock struck noon, where Nixon gave a farewell speech that I have read many times. I've listened to him say the uh, the speech on audio, a recording, many recordings of it. And yes, for the most part, he blathers on about a lot of various things to the point of even saying his mother, you know, she was a saint. Again, he's biding his time. The reality is crushing him now that his presidency is now measured in minutes. Yet, yet even at that moment, the Richard Nixon of 1960, who, res who withdrew from the presidency, who bailed in favor of John F. Kennedy and called to congratulate the winner, doing the right thing. Richard Nixon, in his last minutes of his presidency, also had a very fine moment when essentially he went off script, where you can only imagine the way his advisors were probably gripping their chairs with their fingernails and digging him in, saying, my gosh, what's he going to say? When and he was about to step away from the podium, but he remained and he said something to the effect of, you know, People may hate you in this world, but if you hate them, you only destroy yourself. It was such a profound insight, but one that sadly Nixon needed to adhere to years before, not in the remaining minutes of his presidency. With that, Richard Nixon would leave the podium. He would go outside to Marine One. He would get on those steps and call it bravada, call it what you want. You can Google the images of Nixon resigning and the, or Nixon, August 9, 1974, Marine One, when he would turn and face the, face the crowd on the steps of Marine One on the helicopter put his two hands up in the air with this, with the Nick Richard Nixon famous V for victory sign and get onto the helicopter to be where he and the family would be brought to Andrews Air Force Base, where they, because it is still not noon just yet, would get on Air Force One. And this would be the second Air Force One anomaly. When President Richard Nixon would take off an Air Force One from Andrews Air Force Base. And while heading west to California, his home state, the pilots would hear word on board that the Vice President of the United States, Gerald Ford, has taken the oath of office as the 38th President of the United States. It would be confirmed by a second person where both pilots heard it and that is the second anomaly where Air Force One took off but never landed because now President Richard Nixon is no longer an active president. And because of that, Air Force One returned to its call numbers, SAM 27,000, SAM for Strategic Air Mission. So it is the time when Air Force One took off and never landed. When I said the second anomaly, the first one was the day after the Kennedy assassination when Lyndon Johnson as vice president, Air Force Two became Air Force One 
mid-flight because Vice President Johnson took the oath of office as the 36th president of the United States. It would be on that flight that despite Nixon's practically contagious smile and huge signs of victory as he boarded the steps of Marine One was the exact opposite on Air Force One and even when it turned into SAM 27,000. Not one word was spoken on that several hour flight. One can only imagine the tension felt throughout the Nixon family, not of course to mention the president himself. So Gerald Ford is now the president, the first one, and at this point only one in American history to not only be not elected president, vice president, but also not elected directly president either, as now the 38th president who would have to deal with the serious and significant fallout of Watergate. And that's where we then quickly switch gears to look at the what the, were the implications of Watergate is first and foremost that it fueled further distrust in the federal government. It was here that the federal government, besides if the Vietnam War was not bad enough, if the government's inability to soothe the tension within the racial rioting and male and female inequality, now Watergate in some cases was the final death knell where to the average American constituent, to the government, especially the federal government, that it was the exact opposite that we Americans enjoy. What I mean by that is we Americans are innocent until proven guilty or men until we get married. No, just kidding, honey. Uh, but you're innocent until proven guilty. Now it seemed as though the federal government was in the opposite position, whereas the average American constituent considered the government guilty until proven innocent. So that clearly is a negative implication. But there's also a second one, which is far more positive, And that was the constitutional lesson in separation of powers. Listeners, especially my international listeners that might not be as familiar with this era in American history, the Constitution came under fire. An American president in the highest law of the land, excuse me, the highest office in the land, took the Constitution and attempted to step on it momentarily to better himself personally. And yet, the separation of powers prevailed. The House, the House of Representatives started its investigation. The Senate did its. The Supreme Court was on standby, ready to take and decide in any part of the, judici uh, the judicial review that would be required of this major scandal in American history. And just as our founding fathers had laid out almost, or to be almost 200 years prior, that should anything happen where the president is considered guilty of high crimes and misdemeanors, that boom, he should be removed from office. Now, please know, just to clarify, President Nixon was never impeached. He was also never removed from office. He got out of Dodge before that could happen, and that's significant. Three articles of impeachment were drawn up, but before they could be decided upon, Nixon resigned. So contrary to popular belief, our first American president impeached is not Nixon. 
It's Andrew Johnson. Yes, the first Johnson succeeding Abraham Lincoln from the 16th president. Our second president to be impeached is not Nixon either, though. That's not going to come for another 25 years, 24 years. That's going to be Bill Clinton. More about that when we get there. But again, as I say, Richard Nixon, he got out of office before the Constitution in that article on the presidency as outlined by the founding fathers that should the House of Representatives deem the president guilty of what? You define that anywhere from high crimes to misdemeanors. What does that mean? That's for the American people to decide at that time. And three articles of impeachment were not only drawn up, they were considered to be to be affirmed or confirmed in a landslide should they have been voted upon. Because the articles of impeachment never came to fruition, therefore the Senate, who actually votes on the removal of the president from office, never had anything to decide upon. So that's the reason the Senate never got involved with the impeachment process either. So just a quick point of clarification on that. The reason being is that is the truly the number one error that I hear students saying, and they attempt to correct me when I say that Nixon wasn't impeached. I had a returning adult student that went on her phone to prove to me that Nixon was impeached, and she was astounded to realize, she's like, all these years, I, I always thought he was impeached. No, he, he, he resigned before he got there. So that ends our coverage of the Watergate scandal, and coming to the end here of our 50th episode in the second half of American history, when we, be, we, uh, we return, we're going to do one last quick recap of what becomes known essentially as the four elements that would, quote unquote, be needed for future presidential impeachment trials. Because if any listener is familiar with modern news, impeachment now is becoming, that is almost becoming like a second average word in the average American lexicon. Clearly not what the founding fathers had envisioned. So we begin that by also looking at the Ford presidency when we return to our 51st episode. So thank you for listening. If you have any questions, please go to my website and feel free to email me, especially with any book recommendations you might have. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.